Today I want to talk a little bit about how Jesus changed the world, and I can only hit a small slice of this. There's a lot of us that do not understand the gravity and the impact that this God-man had on our world today. Imagine a world where most of the senior males among the population made the decisions for whether a baby lived or died or was sold into slavery. In the first century Greco-Roman culture, the dominant male in the misogynist culture that was dominating that time period was so profound that, get this now, a woman would give birth to a child, that child would be laid down on the ground, the head of the home, being the man, would walk up, determine whether or not they wanted that baby. They would, not the mom. And whether or not that baby was killed, sold into slavery, or brought to the mother for nourishment was up to that man. Misogyny was rampant. The mortality rate, 50% of children died before the age of 10. So we can see the actions of Jesus so countercultural. He walked into a world that was incredibly divided, no equality whatsoever, and he blew fuses within the minds of people. He loved women. He took the most lowly people considered to be in that day, and he said, I am going to love you. I'm going to care for you. The impact of Jesus on the world is overwhelming. Medical care, hospitals. Have you noticed there's not agnostic or atheist general hospital out there? It's Good Shepherd. It's Providence. The list goes on and on. Orphanages. Birth because of a culture that for thousands of years had neglected children, now cared for them. Because Jesus himself said, no, let the kids come to me, disciples. Even the disciples of that day didn't understand the power of humanity and equality. One of the most amazing phenomenons is equality. The coming of Jesus put the world on its head, flipped it upside down. Did you know that Cicero is considered to be one of the greatest teachers and philosophers in the first century B.C.? At about 50 B.C., he actually is quoted, though, as saying this about women. Women are as dogs or donkeys and to be used and discarded. This is a man that is so heralded to this day, he's considered to be the father of the Renaissance in the 14th century, his teaching on humanities. But he was a chauvinist, he was a misogynist, he was a cruel man. And you ready for this? Cicero was known to be one of the greatest orators in Rome. So here's this man. Super respected, great orator. Imagine him speaking at Greco-Roman theaters, man, pouring out his heart and pontificating on all things philosophical and humanities. And yet, he could care less about women. He said, use them and leave them. So when Jesus came into this world, 
Even the Jewish culture that oscillated back and forth between the respect of humankind and the disrespect of humankind, and even the history as we look at the word, we see the nation of Israel itself went through seasons when they neglected the word of God. For three, four hundred years it was gone. And during those time periods when they turned their back on God, they would offer their firstborn babies as Manasseh and Ammon did on the molten arms of Molech trying to please the unknown gods, totally forgotten the one true and living God. Could it be that we live in a day today that we've become so enamored with our own wisdom we've turned our back on the greatest gift ever? Jesus is not some small group of people. He was a world changer. Without Jesus, we don't have our monetary system. We don't have the calendar in which we have. As I've already said, orphanages, hospitals. How about higher education? Oxford, Harvard. Are you kidding me? They began as divinity schools. In science, Ron Bohm speaks of this. And these are a, this is a little quote from some of his teachings he says Rodney Stark in his marvelous book for the glory of God rightly points out that modern science was born of Christian faith and not in opposition to it it was Christian civilization that proposed that quote design points to a designer end quote and that man was placed on earth to discover God's secrets in nature and use those discoveries to benefit people from Galileo to Faraday, from Pascal to Einstein, many of the leading scientists of both the past and the present have been people of faith who use their trust in God to reveal the mysteries of his creation. Jesus came 2,000 years ago and rocked this planet. The health care you have today is the result of a loving Christ who came into the world and took what was only the haves and the have-nots. And he said, I'm going to float the boat. One of the most surprising points of impact that we can find of God in this world today through his son Jesus Christ is the impact in a very interesting way, and this is where I'm going to shift some gears on you, on the issue of work, business, and commerce. And you might say, Carl, of all the things we could talk about, about the coming of Christ, why would you focus on work, business, and finance? Well, not least of which is because when I was on my radio show this week, I was blown away at the uptick of calls and texts that came in because I simply asked this question, when you came to a relationship with Christ, how did Jesus rock your perspective of work? and commerce I was deluged with answers it was an incredible week so I'm going to focus on that a little bit here today but I want to bring in a special guest via zoom from Scottsdale Arizona here this morning Michael Tooker has spent most of his career in highly competitive world of corporate America one thing that isn't going to be on his bio but I'm going to share with you Michael Tooker is actually the son of the former CEO of Motorola right here in Chicago. So Michael Tooker was raised around some high-stepping guys. 
He spent most of his career in highly competitive world. He's seen firsthand how work culture impacts employees' contentment in the company's bottom line. He recently moved from corner office to serving at one of the largest churches in America, Scottsdale Bible Church. I used to preach there in the summer times on occasion. It was in, it's an incredible church. It's a huge church. It's a mega church. And now he is responsible for overseeing their staff, and there are scores and scores of staff. Regardless of the type of workplace, one of the things I love about Michael is he understands the culture of grace that's God's power to do in us what we can't do in ourselves makes all the difference. Michael earned an undergrad from University of Texas. Don't hold that against him. <laughs> and an MBA from Arizona State. Yep, the old party school. I won't quiz him on that one either. He's the co-author with my dear friend, Dr. Tim Kimmel, on a brand new book called Grace at Work, and I think he's with us right now. Michael, are you with us, my man? Are you with yes. us? Yes, I am. Can you hear me, Carl? I got you loud and clear, buddy. Give Michael a hand for being here all the way from Scottsdale today. Now, I think we're about to blow some circuits here, Michael, because God used work in an unusual way to change your life. How did that happen, Michael? Yes, he did. He did, Carl. He changed it in a radical way. And, and to give you a little bit of background, you, you, you talked about my, uh, my dad's uh, background and uh, you know, I, he went to, to work at, at age 13, uh, and he went to work out of necessity. His dad walked out on his family, and so uh, uh, he went to work uh, because he had to, to support his family. And uh, he and my mom enjoyed some great success. You know, they were just Midwestern, hardworking, what I would call uh, Judeo-Christian people, um, just working hard. And, and they uh, did it out of necessity, um, uh, and then he uh, fell in love with what he did, and, and things turned out really well. But so in the, in, the, in the heels of that, right, I, I came out of, as you said, you know, graduate school and uh, tried to figure out what do you do uh, as a professional. And so I did what I thought you had to do. You, you climb the corporate ladder, you, you build a name for yourself. I was a director at age 25, a senior director at 28, and a VP somewhere around 30. And, and here I was, a, a non-believer uh, in the workplace, working hard, um, you know, kind of grabbing my share, so to speak. And I fell into workaholism. And, uh, you know, you and I have talked about that, but in, in, in my case, it was kind of a slow fade. And it went from just seeking to do good work, right, and to, to build a name and, and to, to um, you know, just to, to, to kind of have some success. Um, and what it ended up being was I was seeking to fulfill my needs through my job. And it was this really going after success and purpose and wealth and comfort and status and identity and all this stuff. Right, that we the world tells us is what we're supposed to grab a hold of, and at age 34, man, I crashed and burned. And you talked about you know Christ coming to this world and, and rocking our world, and he 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 rocked mine. And as I describe it, my moment of salvation was you know picture an, an intersection crash, right? Um, Christ T-boned my life at kind of a three-way intersection of success, self-absorption, and salvation. Is how I describe it. And, and, and in the wreckage of that, um, what I realized, uh, my wife and I were near divorce. Um, um, it was two in the morning and we'd been in therapy for a long time. And, and she just said to me, look, I, I don't love you. I don't even like you. You know, you're, you're never here. And, and when you are, you're just a, you know, jerk. Insert maybe a few other uh, colorful <laughs> phrases there. Uh, just go. We had a, you know, a one-year-old and a, and a four-year-old. She said, just go. 
Just make this easy on me and leave, please. And I realized in that moment, man, I had squandered a great life. And I fell out of bed and onto my knees and I cried out to Christ. And I said, Christ, I have wrecked this life you gave me. And I, I'm a fixer, but I got nothing. I have no idea how to fix this mess I've made. And uh, if you'll be my, my savior, I'll follow you. And so, um, so uh, he grabbed a hold of my heart and he ripped out that heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. And then, so why, do I, why does that matter? There's such a radical shift in my life. And, and I had this beautiful vantage point of 15 years or so as a non-believer, now 19 years back in the workforce as a believer and, and a passionate follower of Christ. Um, and, and in that struggle with workaholism and the, and the discovery of Christ, it's given me a perspective and a real passion yeah. for helping people work the way God designed us to in light of the fall in the gut. So that's, uh, that's what I kind of made a, a big part Sweet of my life. Story. So I'm here to share it with you. Yeah, Michael, thanks for being so honest about that. It's that kind of vulnerability that really goes a long way here, and I think uh, it just lends credibility to you. That vulnerability is... It's a mark of real manhood. Thank you. All right, I want to lightning round through a few questions here. Yeah. First, why is it so hard to strike a balance in work between workaholism and slacking? Because it seems like it's either we have workaholism, and in fact, I was cogitating on this since we talked a little bit, Michael. It seems like when somebody is a workaholic in one area, they are a total slacker in maybe the most important areas. So yeah. talk about that for a second. Yeah, I think workaholism, I think there's a few reasons. I, I got three for this audience I think may, may really resonate. One is if you're a non-believer, you've got people listening and, and maybe they're with you that aren't believers and are, are seeking, who is this Jesus guy? But if you're a non-believer, we, we have no hope in eternal things. And so we, we pursue the temporal and we take our cues from culture. And that's, I say that humbly because that's what I did, right? And we buy into this success myth of money, fame, power, and beauty. And, and we work for ourselves, for, like I said, the status and identity and, and money and, and wealth. And th there's always someone with um, or, or the potential to earn more, right? So there's this bottomless opportunity to, to grab our share. And so I think that's why a lot of people, particularly non-believers, uh, are such workaholics, is that that's what culture tells us to do. And now, I think a second reason is if I'm a believer, if I've compartmentalized my faith, Yeah. When I go to work, I function like a non-believer. So I'm chasing after all the same stuff, right? And then I think there's a, a, a third one, which is a, a believer who has kind of this works-based salvation mentality. And you, you had a great message the other day, Carl, where you talked about performance deception, this notion of performance versus proximity. And I think there's some people that they go to work trying to do it for, for God, but it's, but it's that, like you talked about, it's, it's, it's kind of manufactured. We're trying to work for him and, and win his affections as opposed to abiding in him. And so what comes out of that is this plastic fruit, right? It's not real fruit. It's just plastic fruit. And we're on a treadmill and we just keep running. And so I think those are a few reasons why we struggle with workaholism. Um, and I think on the slacker, the sluggard side, I think that there are some people that just say, hey, work is just a necessary evil. It's just a way to make a living. It'll, it'll give me enough to pay the bills plus a little bit more. And so they just do the minimum to get by. Yeah. And I think if you're a non-believer, that's, let's say that's fine. But if you're a believer, right, we, we're, you're kind of tarnishing the good name of Jesus. We live in this post-Christian world, and people expect us to be, be you know, let's say hypocrites and judgmental. And now yeah, if we can right. throw lazy on top of that, right, that's the <laughs> final nail in the Christian coffin. Right? 
That's so true. So that's good. I think those are a few reasons that, that, that I just think we're, we, we, we fall into this, this slacker mentality. And if I'm the enemy, right, I'm thinking, man, he's prowling around trying to steal souls. And he thinks if I just keep them busy or lazy, I can steal their souls. And it's not that we've, we've chosen Satan. It's that we were too busy or disengaged and apathetic to choose Christ. And so the enemy wins. I'm gonna, this is good stuff. I'm, what do you guys think about this, huh? Pretty cool. Um, Michael, I want to I cut to the last question here, yeah. and you can kind of roll in something about grace and a work dynamic here, but yeah. how, how do Christ followers approach work? If you were to say, come on, man, let's boil it down, you're a, dis- you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, how do yeah. we approach work? Yeah, that's a great question, Carl. I think it's, it's, it's real simple. You know, Tim and I in our book, we, we, we distill the whole thing down to this. Is, um, um, taking grace to work is, is, is treating others the way Christ treats us. And if you think about what Christ said, what did he expect us to do? You know, at one point he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, um, it, you know, you should love your Lord with all your, your heart and your soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then as he's talking with them, right, you know, before he, he gets, you know, um, you know, picked up and, and taken to the cross, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so it's about love. And, 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 and Tim does a nice job of defining love as this. And it's a really important definition because this is what people should take to work, is this loving their colleagues this way. It's, it's the commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, so everyone around me, regardless of the cost to me. And so what I have to do is I have to take my eyes off myself, look up at Christ and out at the people around me, and then think about what is in the needs and best interest of those people. And if I can meet those needs, and man, it's hard work sometimes. Yeah. Because yeah, it's, it's not about being a pushover. It's not about being, um, you know, kind and nice. And sure, at times we are, but man, we go to work and we, and we just love people in such a way that we give them the things that they need most yeah. uh, importantly. And that means sometimes we have to confront them. We have to speak truth. Uh, we have to help them. We have to pick them up and dust them off when they fall down. But if you just think about how did Christ love us, and if that's what we do, if that's what we take to work, and that's how we love the people around us, that's bringing God's grace, his most, his most um, um, extraordinary characteristic, the most defining characteristic of Christ is that unmerited favor that he showed us. Let's love people in such a way, way that we show right them on. that same unmerited favor. Right on. Michael, do not tell us what the temperature is in Scottsdale today. Do not <laughs> do beautiful. that. You can't. But give Michael a big hand, everybody. Thank him for being here. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank, thank you. Michael Tooker, great guy. Um, a lot of great insights there. So I want to do a little bit deeper dive here for the next few minutes. Won't take much time, but I want you to dial in closely. Because this whole issue of work is something that Jesus revolutionized. And you're going to see here in just a moment from some epic writing that's still used in Econ 101 and 401 that a book written in the 1700s is still dictating economics today. But his reference point is profound. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to deluge you with something, but I, I don't want you, because Michael's right on. Many Christians are characterized, rightly so, as angry evangelicals or grumpy, negative, bummed-out people. I want to tell you, I, I put my feet on the rock. His name is Jesus. And the best posture I can have there is they have a posture of humility, especially as a pastor. And I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, what I'm about to share with you is some hard-hitting stuff 
on the issue of work. So this is hard because it's repeated over and over again. Now, let me use this as a backdrop because although we say that a big problem in America today, and it's true, is workaholism, as I was really doing a deep dive on this in my brain, I thought, hold it a second here. Workaholism is really just trying to find your identity in something that you're pouring yourself out to, but it's usually at the neglect or the peril of all these other things. The classic illustration is the workaholic husband. He's busting his hump at work, getting all the applause. He comes home. He's a couch potato loser. If you're here, raise your I'm kidding. If, but this is, a, this is a very real problem. But here's the issue. The issue is not that, that, that there's got a workaholism in every year of their life. Usually workaholics, and I know this because I'm a recovering one, actually has an area that they get the props from, but they often neglect many other areas. For the classic overworked man at work, he's a workaholic over here, but it's because he's neglecting his bride and children over here. That's the classic. But with that as a backdrop, i got to tell you that the foremost addressed issue in the scriptures and that Jesus Christ came to alter was an issue of laziness. Now I need to warn you, God is not big on lazy people. I just got to warn you right now, because I'm about to fire hose you with the Word of God. This, now, don't pick on me, but this is what the Word of God says. And I just have a small sampling. Let me go through them. Proverbs 13, verse 4, look at this. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Let that ruminate with you a little bit. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. I love that word, sluggard. (laughs) Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Come on, sluggard. Get off that bed and go look at an ant. Proverbs 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek it harvest. And what's he going to have? Nothing. Whoa. We're not done with God's inspired word here. Proverbs 18, verse 9. Whoever is slack, this is where you get the word slacker. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. What is God saying? Proverbs 24 is a proverb that I used to recite to my children in their junior high years. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands. To rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. I use this so much on my kids that both of them as adult kids right now, they each have tech companies and my daughter's got 32 employees and my son's got a new startup in Miami and they, they know how to bust their tail. 
and they know that I rise early, but every once in a while they'll catch me, they get up before me, and my son especially will go, a little sleep, little slumber. <laughs> He's texting in the word of God to dad, and I'm like, sucker, I'm up, it's 5.30 a.m. <laughs> But I, I, I rehearse that with my kids all the time because why? God does not like lazy behinds. Why? Because you're ripping yourself off. It's not done. Word of God speak. 1 Timothy 5.8 but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I remember training my dog team in Talkeetna, Alaska, living in a log cabin with a man and his wife and their couple of kids. And I remember him walking in one day saying something to his wife that rocked me. He said, I do not want to be a lazy man. He had struggled with some health issues. He says, I got to be a strong man because I don't want to be worse than an unbeliever. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm talking about 1 Timothy 5.8. Rock me. Proverbs 21 verse 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 6, 6, the pain's almost over, guys, hang on here. Go to the end, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Proverbs 26, 14, as the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. <laughs> Isn't that great picture? <laughs> yeah, I'll get up, Mom, in a little bit. Or maybe if you're a little older, oh, honey, I'll get up in a little bit. Proverbs 10, verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now that's hard-hitting stuff. Isn't that hard? Now why would God hit us so hard on the issue of work? And what's this got to do with the coming of Jesus anyway? Let me just state it this clearly. When God's kids work Hard, it changes the world. And you might say, come on, how can this be? And did it originate with Jesus? It did. <sighs> if you've gone to any higher learning at all, you've probably heard of this. The wealth of nations. The wealth of nations was the magnum opus of a Scottish economist. His name's Adam Smith. He was first published in 1776. And the book offers one of the world's first collected kind of descriptions of what builds nation's wealth and today is fundamental. It is being used in classical economics as we speak. I'm going to give you a couple of excerpts and I'm just going to read them to you. They aren't going to be on the screen. Listen to what was written in 1776 that if you go to Harvard and study economics, you're going to read the same playbook. Listen to what he says. For most of history, and still in some parts of the world, there were only a few wealthy tyrants and then teeming masses of poor people. Get this now. This is what Adam Smith is saying. The way the world went down is you had the haves, the 1%, and the have-nots. There was no middle class. Be careful. You're born into this world. You really got a silver spoon in your mouth, every one of us born into America. But we sometimes think, well, kind of life's kind of always, no, it hasn't always been this way. 
Then he goes on to say this, for thousands of years there was no middle class and no freedom for individual initiative. Get this. These are his words, Adam Smith. During the Christianization of Europe, this all changed. As believers in Jesus applied biblical concepts of labor and industry, which eventually became free enterprise capitalism that led the world out of its mass poverty. Jesus did that. When we find in Galatians and in Ephesians, there's no Jew, nor Greek, no slave, no free, no man, no woman. Jesus blew up godless norms. No matter how progressive you may think you are, the ultimate progressive and healthy progressive moves was done by the Savior of the world 2,000 years ago. As Adam Smith wisely points out in his book, The Wealth of Nations, listen, the large and growing middle classes the endless business opportunities, the Protestant work ethic, extensive philanthropy, and the standard of living we share today, this is 1776, is the fruit of the teachings of Christ applied to economics. Wow. Our Jesus changed the world. Hospitals, orphanages, the equality between men and women. Imagine when Jesus sat down at the well with the woman that had been married five times and is now shacked up. Do you know what kind of signal that sent not only to the Jewish culture but to the Greco-Roman culture? I was just, just, just cogitating a bit on this this week and I thought, you know, we often don't look at the historical cultural context of what Jesus was, what was going on in his life when he was crucified. But don't think for a minute that the life of Jesus didn't totally intimidate people. Words, according to John himself, who wrote in the Gospel of John, many more things are done by Jesus. These are written that, that you would believe. But don't think for a minute Jesus didn't put the Greco-Roman Jewish culture on tilt when he sat down with a woman at a well. He did. Now I want to talk to all of you because we all have work. And I want to make sure that you understand me on this one. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a worker. If you are a go-to-work mom, you're a worker. If you're a go-to-work dad, if you're a whatever work you have, there's a work that God's called you to. If you're a dad, you're a worker. And God's given you the opportunity to have dignity. So if sluggardness is ripping us off, being a lazy booty is ripping you off, and we're going to see here in a moment that it is, what are the things, and I want to answer this here, and I want you to wrestle with this as well, because I'm going to ask you to do an exercise at the end of this service today. What are the three things that keep you and me from working for the glory of God? I want us to wrestle with this one. What keeps us from working for the glory of God? 
What keeps us from busting our tail in the morning? I'm not talking about becoming a workaholic. I'm not talking about having your day filled with work from morning to night. I'm talking about redeeming time. What keeps us from doing it? I've got three things I want you to consider. The first is this. Thinking no one will see that I'm slacking. Come on, give me an amen, someone. Give me an amen for your neighbor sitting next to you. Yeah. Come on, this is real. Why do we sometimes slack? Because we think, ain't no one going to see. Now, I am not of the mindset, there's a father up above who's looking down. That song, when I was a kid growing up, scared me half to death. And it gave me some bad theology. I, my picture of God was that there's a father up above who's looking down in love and he's really ticked off at you, Carl. Yes, he is. I mean, I was, I was scared to death of that guy. But I need you to hear me right now. It's not that he is looking at you with contempt. He's looking at you with sadness because you're missing, and we're going to see here in a moment, the inheritance that we have in our relationship with Christ. But this is a big one. Thinking no one will see you slacking. Here's the second one is another big one. <sighs> Comparing ourselves to others who are slacking. Do you know what I've learned? Do you know what I've learned? If you compare yourself to people, you are going to live a constant reductionist life where you are going further and further and further down. I have a couple of uh, people in my life, and I've heard this from a couple of millennials. I, I know a couple of millennial entrepreneurs. You know what they tell me? They say to me, Pastor Carl, we love competing against millennials. I said, why do you like competing against millennials? Because millennials don't know how to work. Now, don't, I'm not saying that. That's millennials saying that about millennials. Now, interestingly enough, Gen Z and the later generations that are coming along, they're saying some of them are looking at the culture that's gone, the generation that's gone before them, and they're going, wow, you were riding on the, the coattails of the generation in front of you. We're going to suck it up, and we're going to start working now. It's funny how that goes through cycles. But make no mistake about it, every time you compare yourself to someone who is slacking and you decide, I'm going to parallel that, you're ripping yourself off. I happen to live in a work environment at a Christian radio station. And I'm going to be candid with you. Shh, don't tell anyone this. And those of you that are watching this online, oops, I guess it's out there. I'm going to give it to you straight up. I'm going to be really honest with you. There are ample people where I work. I won't say ample. There are people where I work. That, why are you laughing at me now, guys? There are people where I work that, and this is super important to hear, that if I were to govern my work ethic based on theirs, I would be ripping myself off. But Moody Bible Institute isn't any different than where you work. And some of you that work at home, this third one's going to apply the most. 
Because another thing that keeps us working for the glory of God is feeling underappreciated and slacking to reflect your disgust. How many of you in this room, now it's really getting quiet, you've kind of held your boss hostage because he didn't show appreciation. And I'm going to work commensurate with that lack of appreciation. I'm going to move on from this because this is way too much conviction for one Sunday morning. (laughs) But I want to walk you through here a cool little brief central passage of Scripture that's going to talk about the way to work. This passage, don't put it up there yet, Isaac, is going to be kind of the watershed passage in the context of this passage of Scripture written to the Greek-Roman culture of Colossae is a letter that was written for the purpose of helping people from all economic stratas see the need to be busting their tail to the glory of God. Now the group that's specifically being spoken of here are servants. These are people that have given their life over to people that have more than them. And you know what God is saying in the word? He says, even you. I know I know the common economics of our world would say, you can take it easier. You don't have as much as this guy, you take it easier. The Apostle Paul, speaking for God, says to the opposite. Let's look at what he says. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You know what's being spoken of here? The inheritance that Paul is writing them is this. He's saying, I know you work for guys that when they keel over and die, they're handing off all these properties to their children. Don't worry about that. I've got an inheritance for you and a reward in your eternal home that's going to blow it away. Remember what Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And there are many rooms. And God's going to take us there. Guys, let me just share my heart here for a moment. Sometimes when we get to a message like this with Christmas right around the corner I almost flinched and didn't give you this message but this is what God put on my heart and and here's why I think the evidence of authentic faith Yeah, we could sit up here and talk about Jesus born 2,000 years ago and away in a manger, no crib for... We could do that. But the totality of the Word of God is so practical that what God is saying from His Word, He's saying that when God invades the life of a person, everything changes. Just like hospitals are built and orphanages are built and children now have a place of honor. And women are equal to men and there's no Jew or Greek and there's no slave or free. This Christmas, 
I want you to know that God wants you to be so irrigated with the power of his presence that you open the word and you see warnings to sluggards and you go, God, don't let me be that. And then you might say this. Working for the eyes of God and the glory of God will be rewarded by God. Somebody's here today and doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, raised in church, never surrendered their life to him. I want to make you a promise. Jesus is changing the world still one life at a time. But here's the funny proposal I have for you. When Jesus takes over a soul, he takes over the totality of who you are. And he not only saves you, and he redeems you, and he transforms you, and he seals you by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1, and nothing can snatch you from the hand of God. But while you're in his hand, he begins to show you all kinds of things, and this is how practical our Jesus is. He'll whisper words of how important it is to have a good work ethic. People that tell me, is Jesus relevant for today? Are you kidding me? We got an economist from a few hundred years ago, and he's still being taught in the halls of Harvard. Those of you that are in Jesus today and you know it, I don't want you to think that our Jesus is sequestered to a little cave and a carved out stone and some straw. He came to earth, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he wants to live powerfully in your life today. I want you to close your eyes. I want Caleb to come up here. I don't want anyone looking around here right now. I'm going to do an exercise with you. One of the things that I desperately want to do in 2023 here at 180, and we're going to do this. I want us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Anyone else with me on this? Come on. And I've got, yeah, yeah, you can even clap. Yeah, God, I checked with him. He's good on that. So here's the deal. I'm going to ask you right now, which of the three things that I just mentioned most keeps you from working for the glory of God? I'm going to give them to you. Which of the three things? I don't want you to stand up and shout it out. I want you to just speak it out to God. Thinking no one will see me when I'm slacking. That's one. Second is comparing ourselves to others who are slacking. And the third one is feeling underappreciated and slacking to reflect your disgust. Where's your area of weakness? Which one? We all have one. If you don't, I need to talk to you afterwards because you're not looking at yourself accurately.
thinking no one will see you when you're slacking, comparing ourselves to others who are slacking, and feeling underappreciated in slacking to reflect your disgust. If it makes you feel any better, I've been in all three of these probably in the last month. I want you to let the Lord do a work in your heart right now. Now I want you to think about something that is really personal. What area of your life do you feel God wants you to work more for his eyes this week? Not for the eyes of man, not the acclaim of a boss, for his eyes. Come on, what area? Don't say a word, just keep it to yourself right now. Think about it right now.
in that same key. Let's come to our feet. No moving around, no one hitting the doors yet. I just got something I want to say to you in a moment. Hang on. Stand up here. Lead us in a course. Sing it out to him. things I want to say to you here before I let you loose. Number one, I I don't want anyone to walk out of here feeling condemned. But man, I'm okay if you walk out of here with deep conviction. That's okay. Why? Con- conviction acted upon lead. Live. 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 A couple other things I want to say to you. Uh, today, we want to just thank all of our ambassadors. That's our fancy name. Actually, it's a biblical name for servants of God. So we just want to thank you, ambassadors. And we got some good chow out in the lobby, and we're just going to have a good time. It won't take long, but it's worthy just to get together with people. And sometimes it'll even lift a hurting heart. So enjoy it. Last thing I want to say is this next uh, Christmas Eve, I'm going to be here at 3 o'clock with the rest of the team. I hope you can make it. We're going to have this place decorated in a cool way. And I've got a gift for you. Now, if you can't be here Christmas Eve, I'll have it the Sunday following. But i got a gift for you, and I, I want each of you to get one. It's actually two things stuffed in one of those cool bags that has the tissue coming out. I don't want to say anymore. I might give it away. Now may the God who worked hard for six days and then rested, may God instill a, a work ethic in us that's born not of our own strength, but born of the Spirit. To Him be glory, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas, everybody.